You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Beyond our time, beyond our universe, there is a planet besieged by alien invaders. Where a young king must rescue his love from the clutches of the beast. Or risk the death of his world. A world... together to this world have come the slayers and their overlord the beast if you consent to be my queen i will halt the attacks of the slayers their incredible power has taken the planet by force their inhuman savagery has got to be stopped and these are the ones who must stop it Thieves. Let's just kill them and be done with it. Warriors. Wizards. A changeling. That rudeness. I think I'll turn you into a goose. A cyclops. That's the second time you've saved my life. A child. A king. I give fire to walk. It will not return. Except from the hand of the woman I choose as my wife. Unlikely allies. Well, you heard him. We are now an army. Battling an unbeatable enemy. For the life of the Princess Lissa. He's too powerful. And the freedom of the planet Kroll. Courage lives in many worlds. But the bravest of all is Kroll. A world light years beyond your imagination. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Noel Thingval. Do you have any gooseberries? This week, we're discussing Krull. Released in 1983, the film was directed by Peter Yates and written by Stanford L. Sherman. The film stars Ken Marshall as Colwyn, a somewhat brash young warrior who is betrothed to Lizette Anthony as Lissa. The two are to form an alliance between the two kingdoms to unite their armies in hopes of defeating the Beast and his slayers, ruthless extraterrestrials bent on taking over their world. But when their wedding is crashed, Lissa is taken and Corwin has to lead a ragtag group to rescue her. Of course, we're going to be spoiling the hell out of this 36-year-old film. So if you haven't seen... Yes. If you haven't seen Crawl, please don't wait. Just go out and watch Crawl, and you can come back and listen to this or not, but you really, you should watch Crawl. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Crawl, and what did you think? Crawl is one of those movies for me that was just seemed to pop up on TV unexpectedly. And so the first couple times I saw it, it wasn't straight through. It was, you know, what whatever bits and pieces I would catch. And I just really came to love it. And I didn't realize until years later, I, I saw it probably like as an early teenager for the first time. And I didn't realize until years later that other people didn't love it as much as I do. I'm still baffled by that information. That is hard to believe. I guess it's one of those movies, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but it's one of those movies like Beastmaster or Dune, where 
I love what it tries to do and the different elements it sort of tries to combine. And I genuinely don't understand how people can watch this and be bored. Like, I just find it so endearing and comforting that it's, yeah, it's a mystery. How about you, Noel? I actually just screened it for a friend last week who was bored out of his mind. <gasps> oh! Yeah. How? So I, He's not really yeah. a friend. <laughs> well, I, I I don't love it the way you do either, but I I don't hate it. It's it's I saw it first what probably early nineties. I was probably like eleven or twelve at the time. Not to make you feel old, Mike. It was a midnight movie. I saw it at like one o'clock in the morning. I don't think it was Joe Bob, um, but it was it was on one of those like cable midnight movie things, and I was like ha- half asleep, just kind of being like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Kind of reminded me of when I saw uh, Dune for the first time on Disney at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh. Back when Disney used to play Dune. Even then, I was like, something's not quite working here, and yet some things are really working here. And it's a film I've always revisited. Like, every four or five years, I go back and I watch Crawl again. And yeah, there's there's a lot of films that I love that I can't say that about, that I keep revisiting. And yet, I, I don't know, there's some kind of a fondness that I have for it where... There's things that really work, there's things that really don't work, and there's things where they're trying, and they're kind of pulling it off and kind of not. And it's kind of like a definition of a mixed bag film for me. But I mean, it's like, I've I've been through Crawl, like I've read the comic, I've read the novelization, I've read the screenplay years ago. I've always kept coming back to Crawl, even though I, it's not a film that I, I love, and this film I have a lot of problems with, I keep coming back to it. That sounds like the promo for Crawl 2. Come back to Crawl. I saw this at the theater when I was 11 years old. This opened right around the same time as Return of the Jedi. And I will be 100% honest that I like this more than Return of the Jedi. Like you, Noel, I return to this film every few years. I can't say that I do the same for Return of the Jedi. There are no Ewoks in Krull. Thank God for that. This follows that template, though, that Hero of a Thousand Faces that we've seen time and again. And it was so funny this last time watching it. I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is very Lord of the Rings. Okay, this is very Star Wars. It's very Campbellian, yeah. But I still enjoy the hell out of it. I was uh, the last time I rewatched it, it kind of like you, Sam, I caught it right in the middle. I was walking through uh, the living room and my wife had it on. And I was like, I don't know what movie this is right off the bat, but I sure know that James Horner did the score for it because James Horner's scores, at least at this point in his life, all really sounded very much the same. Like Khan, yes. Oh my God. The- <laughs> Fan- fanfare soundscapes. There are so many. Con-like themes in here. I couldn't even believe it. And just he seems to have that same instrumentation over and over again. But, you know, I mean, I I pick on James Horner all the time, RIP, but he kind of deserved it for some of what he was doing of copying himself throughout so many of these scores. I'm not even totally sure how to articulate this, but 
I find something strangely comforting or maybe even kind of endearing. And I'm sure I'm going to be using those words a lot this episode, but I find something really weirdly endearing about how generic the score is. They could have gone this sort of, you know, strange tangerine dream route and had it feel like a completely different film. But I love that it has these really like you guys were just talking about with the, the sort of Joseph Campbell structure. It has these sort of generic elements that just make it seem even weirder when you mix in the sort of unexpected things. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I definitely love about it. One of the things I think keeps intriguing me is the mixture of genericism and weirdness. Yeah, it's it's yeah. very odd and strange and yet very classical. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, but it's it's hard for me to sort of explain this, but I tend to like those kinds of sci-fi fantasy films from this period that do exactly what you just described, where you think you know exactly what you're getting, but you don't really, and it's kind of a train wreck, but sort of in a wonderful way. And I definitely think Dune fits into that category, and... I think Zardoz fits into that category, Beastmaster, and I would rather watch all of those movies than any of the Star Wars movies. And I know I'm in a minority here, maybe not in this episode, but like in the world. But there's just something so fascinating about the fact that they try to do something different. I got into the 80s wave of fantasy movies that came after Star Wars before I got into Star Wars. I was born in 1982, so like by the time I was a kid, the initial wave of Star Wars had already passed. So like my Star Wars, the very first Star Wars films I saw were the Ewoks movies. That might be the same with me. So I was born in 83, but my dad was really young when I was born. And I have a, a lot of like uncles in the picture who were also like in their early 20s when I was a kid. So they would make me watch stuff that I probably wouldn't have found out about as early. So, but my clearest memory of Star Wars as a, as a child were the, the Ewoks for sure. The Star Wars movies had always been around. I had a bunch of the hand-me-down action figures. They played on TV a lot, but I don't think I ever sat down to watch them until they did. It was before the special editions, but they did those THX remastered releases in around like 94, 95. Yep. That's what I have. I think that was the first time I actually sat down and watched them all front to back. And by then, I had already seen Crawl, I had seen Willow, Legend, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Dragon Slayer. I, I, I grew up with those before I grew up with Star Wars. There's a weird mix in this movie as far as being this kind of medieval world, but then that there's sci-fi added on top of it. And it's a very uneasy mix, you know, like talking about Star Wars, obviously, long time ago, galaxy far, far away. So we are in another world and we are, you know, playing out those hero tropes throughout that. And we understand there are lasers and all these things. When it comes to this one, we've got the swords and, you know, we've got Corwin who is basically channeling uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. or Errol Flynn and, you know, aha, have at thee, these kind of things. And then we've got the Slayers who have laser beams. And it's like, okay, this is kind of interesting. So it tries to have a lot of different elements all at the same time. And I have to say, like, 
there are things that work and there are things that don't necessarily work when you sit there and you go, okay, I understand like he's wearing, you know, like a leather jerkin and all these kind of things. He looks like he's right out of a D and D game, but then the guards at the palace have like these plastic masks. And I'm just like, well, that's kind of weird that they have plastic, but he is all in more medieval guard. It feels like maybe they should have kept all of the sci-fi elements to just the slayers and the bad guys and had the medieval stuff just for the good guys and the actual natives of Krull. But yet there are there's a little bit of bleed over that I don't think necessarily should be there. There's this kind of just slightly odd quality to it, like, like it's even just like the design of the weapons. You know, like they have these odd curves and spikes and blades to them that that make them seem weird and different and alien. And I kind of get it. I kind of like the idea of like, we're just going to take a fairy tales told on another world. But yeah, it's, it's odd. It's interesting just kind of reading into the development about, of this film of how it started as pure medieval. And then they kind of gradually in- increased the sci-fi elements over their production to the point where like the lasers were all added in post-production, you know, the, the shots of the flying uh, fortress in the opening were, was added very late in the game to the point where you could see mat work that they never got to finish. And that is one of the things that I find the most fascinating is the way that they just sort of decided throughout the course of production to make it completely different. I can't imagine how stressful that would be to think like, okay, you know, we're starting off with this pretty predictable medieval fantasy film. But like, why not make it more like Star Wars, even though we've already started shooting? I bet you anything Dragon Slayer had part something to do with that in that that kind of beat them to the punch in a lot of elements that were in the original script yeah and apparently dragon slayer just tanked which i didn't realize because i remember loving dragon slayer when i was a kid yeah that's one that disappeared pretty quick yeah and it's it's strange if you think about a couple years ago i tried to find as many 80s and maybe even early 90s dragon movies as I could. And there just aren't really a lot, I think, because it's so expensive and so difficult to pull those effects off in a sort of convincing way. Well, now Asylum puts out one a month. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And now it's like, well, we, we live in a different time. I didn't realize until much later that the sort of beast, the antagonist of Krull, was supposed to be a dragon. And I prefer it the way it is now, I guess. Like, I think it's just more interesting, maybe. Or maybe I'm just used to it and can't disengage. Again, it's like, if Dragon Slayer hadn't come out by then, he's very much a smog character, like, in the original script. I can see why they wanted to do something different. I don't love the design of the beast, but I, again, give him points for trying something different. Don't worry, Noel. You don't really get a, get a chance to see the beast very much at all. <laughs> Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sights? Part of my problem with both the beast and a lot of the other production design is that when you try to do H.R. Giger without everything being penises and vaginas, it just kind of looks like nothing. Well, it also looks like in certain shots, they realize that they didn't really have the most solid production design or creature design. So... Sometimes it looks like they shoot it through like a Vaseline smeared like porno lens. Like it's so soft. And then the kaleidoscope effect. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like what a choice. So we get this whole idea at the very beginning of the Krull. That's one of my other questions. Is Krull the planet 
or is Krull the invading force? I mean, what is Krull? In the script, Krull was the fortress. In the finished film, Krull is the planet. So no wonder I'm baffled by that. It's another thing that kept changing over time. It's so confusing. This this is definitely a film that was they were they were kind of making it up as they went along. The fortress arrives and lands on the planet. The fortress that was once named Krull lands on the planet that is now named Krull. And the fortress really reminds me of the big fortress that is in the Dark Crystal. And especially that it can move and disappear and go from place to place. I don't think the one in the Dark Crystal can, but it looks like it should have that ability. And we get Freddie Jones doing a voiceover. Freddie Jones, one of my favorite character actors uh, of this time. He played Thufir Howitt in Dune. And he played the really mean uh, guy who was uh, very abusive to John Merrick and the Elephant Man. And he's been in a ton of other things. But I love when David Lynch would use him, especially when he was talking about pigeons and how dirty, dirty they are in Wild at Heart. Pigeons spread diseases. I must have the that. And he becomes our Obi-Wan Kenobi character, which is fantastic. In fact, when he first comes up to Corwin, I thought that Corwin was going to be like, oh, do you know old Ben Kenobi? Well, he is literally a near the old one. They mention all this stuff that happened in the past, and I'm surprised that we're not getting a Netflix series anytime soon, which is the prequel to Krull, where we get to see the original stuff that was going on, where we get to see the Cyclops people make a deal with the Beast, and then they lose their other eye, and they can see the future, but they can only see the moment of their death. I mean, that would be a pretty cool episode, right? That would be amazing. Now I just want to give this to the, the Avatar crew. The Last Airbender, just do an animated series of Krull. I would watch that, especially if they kept the weird sci-fi elements that don't make sense and didn't just try to make it a, like a Game of Thrones ripoff. There's even sci-fi in this wedding ceremony with this the flame that he puts out and then she takes from the water. And it's like, okay, that's kind of weird. I mean, we could say that it's magic, but in this world, it might be sci-fi, which is interesting. The other thing that I find very interesting is that it is Corwin arriving with his dad and his men. And there's Lissa, who is at her castle with her dad and his men. There's no moms whatsoever. I mean, this movie is really bereft of female presence. There's like Lissa, and then there's a couple village-type women, maybe prostitutes, maybe Liam Neeson's many wives later on. Yeah, then there's the widow, and then the changeling lady, and that's, yeah. Yeah, the widow of the web, and she, again, has this huge backstory with Yanir, the old one, and we'll talk about that. But, yeah, very, very few women in here, and especially that there are no queens. And I know that there was a queen in the script, which, again, you know, we'll definitely talk about the script and just how amazingly different the film is from that. Different, but the same at the same time. In interviews, she talks about how Alyssa's character was maybe going to be evil at some point, and she's disappointed because that didn't happen. Yeah, there's supposed to be a real temptation from the Beast to actually get her on his side, and none of that stuff happens at all. And yeah, I feel really bad for Lisette Anthony, especially watching that. It was uh, an episode of, what, That's Hollywood with Tom Bosley narrating it's a great episode. I, I used to love watching that show. And they've got Lisette Anthony on set doing her lines, doing the, the wedding scene, if memory serves. And then they cut to her 
in the movie and her voice is overdubbed. And I'm just like, why? Why did you have to overdub her voice? Her voice sounds absolutely fine. And she definitely carries a grudge about that. And action. I take fire from water. I give it only to the man who I choose as my husband. I take fire from water. I give it only to the man whom I choose as my husband. How could you not? It's so rude. It's like, I get on some level that the character is this sort of basic type that you see pop up in almost every single one of those 80s fantasy movies. But it's like, okay, you don't really give her that much to do. She was going to have an interesting character arc, and now she doesn't. And she doesn't even get to use her own voice. Like It's just so rude. I mean, one of the things I was going to bring up is that a lot of the production crew on this movie then went on to work on Legend. And there's a lot of parallels in the story between this and Legend. You know, not not only, especially in, you know, she's trying to be seduced by the Beast. And I think Legend did a much, much better job of gradually pulling her to the point of almost joining him, but then she still doesn't. At face value, I would much rather watch Crawl than Legend for whatever reason, even though, like, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you grew up watching things like Dark Crystal and Willow, and I loved those movies as a kid and definitely watched them more than, like, Star Wars, but for some reason, I always found legend to be kind of grating but one way that it succeeds over crawl is that it has a really charismatic convincing antagonist and i i think crawl would be a much stronger film if there had been more of the beast and the beast had been made more compelling i mean you know you can't beat tim curry I mean, they already had Liam Neeson on set. Just put Liam Neeson in some makeup and a cloak. You know, that's all you need. Such a waste. (laughs) I think, yeah, they they tried to do something too effectsy with the Beast instead of... I mean, to be fair, you know, Tim Curry is wrapped in makeup, but it's still the personality of, of darkness that really makes him such a compelling villain. And that wonderful, seductive voice. The cuts to Lissa in the Beast... To me, they're almost jarring because it's like, oh, yeah, she's also there. And you forget that she's even around, even though they're just trying to save her. That's their whole raison d'etre with this film. But when they cut to her, it's like you just hear the Beast's voice or she's in that shot where it's like a giant eyeball. And I was like, well, that's really cool design. And is she inside of the beast? How big is the beast? We don't know at this point what's going on. And it feels like maybe the inside of the fortress is the beast. And maybe there's going to be a mouth later on or a nose or something. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing other parts of this. And then as it goes on, it's like, okay, I'm getting nothing out of this. And then at one point I'm getting a lot of blue screen and I'm just like, okay, why are we blue screening this stuff when we actually had the big eyeball earlier? Just put her back in the eyeball set. You know, that, that works fine for me. And then the climax takes place at an alien gazebo. You know, it's just that weird, that little dome, that little completely unthreatening dome. I don't know why they did that. It, it Maybe it was that they just made too many last minute changes And it would have been too much to accommodate more, but they could have done so much more with it. And and it's frustrating that you see sort of like the tip of what it could have been. I found myself asking a lot of questions when I was watching the film the last time and then found a lot of the answers inside of the script, like the whole thing of 
them uh Yenir and Corwin going to find the glaive. You know, we need a, a symbol for the king and he needs to have this special weapon and it is going to be the only thing that can kill the beast. And he goes up and does this whole leap of faith moment that is typical for all of these heroes' journeys, putting his hand in this lava or what looks like, you know, strawberry jelly, pulling out the glaive. And I'm like, okay, cool. Now he gets to use the glaive and you know, he, he's going to be an expert with it. This will be fantastic. And no, no. Just kidding. No glaive. No glaive for you. You will know when it is time to use this. And I was like, oh, really? You, Come on. You yeah. will know the one time in the movie yeah. when you get to use this in the lamest way possible where it turns into like a laser show and cuts through rock, I guess. <laughs> or cartilage of some piece inside of the beast. Yeah, that gazebo that you're talking about. Yeah, I was really looking forward to him just using that all the time. And he's got it there on his belt the whole time. I'm just like, come on, man, use it. It's time to use it. I mean, the script even has him training to learn how to use it. As like, it's just, they just don't, I, I don't know why they, I don't know if it was just they had to save on the effects, if it just didn't line up with it. it I'm wondering if they just couldn't figure out the effects of the glaive until the last minute. And so they were just kind of like, well, we have to minimize this. We have to, you can't use it until the time is right. It's so frustrating. It's also one of the things that I really love about this movie that I love about a lot of those 80s movies is I grew up reading really bad fantasy novels. And it's like my version of watching a soap opera, I guess. It's what I do when I want to turn my brain off. And you get used to the tropes. And like the fact that it uses the trope of okay here's this special magic weapon but then he never gets to use it it's like that's that's like the cardinal rule of this sort of like hero quest thing and you're you're breaking the rule like what are you doing yeah i mean after he gets the lightsaber he should at least have the time to use it against the um you know the beacon or whatever the the training module on the falcon while they're going to alderaan come on I can't see anything through this flash shield. Yeah, where was where was the equivalent of that? Yeah, search out with your feelings. Yeah. I can't put it in my pocket without cutting everything. Right. <laughs> I love how in the shots where he holds up the glaive and like the crust breaks off, and then you cut back to another shot where the blades pop out, they had to completely reposition the hand. Because otherwise that blade would have gone right through his hand. It seems like a very impractical weapon, I have to say. But it's not supposed to be practical. It's supposed to be mystical. It's one of those things I can understand the appeal of the visual, but they didn't quite crack how to make it feel like a natural part of the hero, you know? Yeah, when they did glaives on Fortune Fire, they did look nothing like this, and I was very sad about that. Your weapon will kill. Thank you. It's time to go see the Blind Emerald Seer, and they're going to go through the, the whole quest, and we get our characters added to the group as we go along of course we get ergo and the magician who is one of my favorite characters and he's played by the same guy who plays charlie bucket's teacher in willy wonka and the chocolate factory i've just decided to switch our friday schedule to monday which means that the test we take each friday on what we learn during the week will now take place on monday before we've learned it but since the day is tuesday it doesn't matter in the slightest I love that he gets out of this water and he basically says, I must have taken a wrong turn at Albuquerque. And he reminds me so much of, I don't know if anybody, I'm sure at least one of you either has seen or read the last unicorn, but the last unicorns protagonist is almost the same character. It's like this 
you know, and, and I mean, I guess it's sort of the same way in Willow too, where it's like, he's a magician or a sorcerer, but he's not like quite at full power. So he's like the sort of comic buffoon version of the powerful sorcerer. That kind of became a thing for a while where it was like, there was that, there was the, the sort the wizard kid from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, you know, who's always trying to pull something out of his hat and he always gets the wrong thing. Ergo's the one who spots the Cyclops, and we'll talk more about the Cyclops as we go along. I mean, really, it's like we find Ergo, we kind of find the Cyclops, and then we find Torquil, who's played by Alan Armstrong, who we've talked about on this show before. He was Michael Caine's uh, boy when he goes back up to uh, north of London, uh, goes back home in order to avenge his brother's death in... um, Kit Carter. He was the guy who gets the shit kicked out of him there. Alan Armstrong has such an amazing face. I love looking at this guy. He does. He's one of my favorite things in this movie, and I think it wouldn't feel as believable maybe if if he wasn't like the head of that sort of ragtag band or army or whatever it is they become. I love him. Honestly, one of my favorite things about this movie is the cast. Torquil is a great right-hand man type guy, kind of quasi-antagonist who becomes like your your best friend in action. You know, again, Ergo, you know, the, the befuddled uh, sycophant who just gradually becomes a really great person, the Cyclops and his tragic backstory. We kind of skipped over talking about Ken Marshall. Yeah, Ken Marshall, I, I, I like him a lot, and I wish I would have seen him in more. There's not much to the character, though. Yeah, he really does have you you brought this up earlier but i think he really is convincing as that sort of like 80s version of errol flynn in a way that like it just it sort of baffles me that in so many of these other 80s fantasy movies a lot of the leads went on to do bigger things and like what happened to him i know part of the reason is he lost his hair being, being a bald guy, I know what that can do to people's impressions of you. Yeah, he was, I think he did a lot of theater still. Uh, but yeah, he's got that very springy, uh, very energetic and physical. He's very expressive. I think he's a good leading man. I think my only issue is Colwyn just, he, Colwyn doesn't really have an arc. He pretty much starts out. I mean, yeah, there's this whole little bit of like, don't rush in and you'll, you'll build a team and all that stuff, but that's it. Otherwise, he's a pretty noble, really, you know, level-headed guy. He's very charismatic at being able to draw people into to his cause. He's he's a fun character, but there's, again, there's just no real story to him. When he first meets Inir after he has lost his father, his father's dead, and his bride gets taken, then he has a moment of emotional crisis – but Yanir is able to snap him out of it within just a few seconds. You know, I, I need a king, not a boy. You know, I came looking for a king and found a boy. And he's just like, well, I need weapons, not symbols. And then that's about it. That's a big conflict. And then after that, he's just like, have at thee. I am here. Yeah, he, ne- he never has a moment of self-doubt after that. Yes, I totally agree with what you're both saying. But the more I watch this movie as an adult, the more I am grateful that we did not get a sniveling whiner like Luke Skywalker, who is one of my least favorite, like, hero protagonist characters. So it's like, yeah, okay, there is not a lot of growth, but he's just so dependable. 
And I, I kind of like that. Yeah, and I don't think he's bad. Again, I, I think Ken Marshall is great. I think he's well cast. He's very energetic. It's not that I think the character's bad. It's just there's nothing really there to hook me to his, him being the, 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 the one who's pulling me through this story. He's kind of more like, you know, you would have the kind of noble dashing guy who'd be the side, be the, the, the bigger brother character of the lead hero. And to be fair, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know that we needed like a kid who will become king type of thing. I just wish that there was something more, something like, the responsibilities like you know he's focused so much on the immediate thing it's like well yeah but there needed to be more of showing the world that's being affected by this so that he would be faced with the responsibility that you're the one who's going to have to fix all this i know right now you're very much focused on i got to go get my bride fight the beast but you are going to have to rebuild this world also if you think about those kinds of character types like you know, like a King Arthur or an Aragorn or something, they they usually have to make some sort of sacrifice, and he doesn't. So I think maybe that's one way that they could have changed the script yet again. But to give him some depth is if he had to like make some kind of choice in order to save Krull. Going back to the glaive and the whole practice thing, we don't even get that he needs to practice with the glaive and that there's something that he can't do because otherwise he can do everything in this. And yeah, I, again, I don't mind that. You know, I don't mind that he's not the whiny Luke Skywalker type character, but if he was a little bit more Paul Atreides, you know, something that he has to learn while he's going throughout this, you know, be able to have a skill and then practice it, that would be fantastic. And yeah, again, He's got the glaive. Let's see him practice with the glaive and show that he's not good at something. Because otherwise, he'll just go up to Torkoal and be like, hey, guy, I know you got sons, blah, 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 blah. And just he's so charismatic and he manages to turn this hardened killer guy around within just a few moments. And then all of a sudden, he's got a whole band of warriors. I think that kind of ties to one of my broader problems with the movie is just the, the limited scope of the world. It's we just see this very limited group of characters, usually in very isolated settings, and we hear about villages are being raised, and and you know, like, uh, why didn't you send anyone to come out and help our army? We did, and they all died. You know, we we don't we don't get this this scale of this world that is literally being ground under the beast's foot, and I think that's part of what what also keeps this film from not working for me is it just doesn't have that scale. Even if they had included like two or three quick shots of that, it would have added so much depth, like just giving you an idea of what's at stake. Because right now it seems like the only thing that's at stake is Lissa and this band of dudes. Right. Because I know Rip Torn is out there pillaging villages and stuff in Beastmaster. And we've got that opening with the slayers all crawling up the walls of the castle and stuff. It's like, okay, cool. We get those guys. So let's see them do something else, something outside of what, you know, because our POV is almost 100% Corwin. And then occasionally we get those. And maybe this is why it's so jarring when we go to Lizette and we get her, or sorry, Lissa, and we get her. There are very few times that we break away from Corwin, you know, like her and then the one scene of Yanir when he goes to the web. And that's about it. And the other thing, too, is that we are so set-bound with this whole film. We get the fire mare scene, and that's 
almost refreshing in that we are actually seeing the real sky and the real world. Otherwise, it is, you know, it's impressive. The sets are impressive. They're very large, but they feel like sets. Like this whole thing of him going in and finding Torkoal, I'm just like, okay, yeah, the, we, we've got about 50 feet worth of depth, depth here, and that's about all we're working with. Yeah, and when we're and when we're outside, it's usually like, uh, here's three minutes of climbing a mountain to James Horner. I find the outside scenes kind of annoying because the score is just so bombastic. It's like we're outside. He's <laughs> trying to sell it. And then I just love with like the fire mirrors. You go from outside of like four straight minutes of them wrangling horses to now blue screen James Horner action shots. The fire mare scene goes on for a little while, I had to say. A bit. Just a bit. <laughs> like, I like I like the actual ride of the fire mares. The problem is that's coming on the heels of the catching of the fire mares. Yeah, I also, I love how Lord of the Rings it is, where it's like, well, we have to be from point A to point B, which is this impossible distance in this impossible amount of time. It's like, wait a minute. What about these convenient, fantastical creatures that can get us there in a hot second? <laughs> Run, Shadowfax. Show us the meaning of haste. I, I have one quick question about the whole movement of the fortress. It does 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 this world not have time zones? That's a good question. Because it's like the sun keeps seeming to to set and rise in the same place on the world every day. I mean, I know there's two suns, but there's still times when there's night. I didn't even think about that. So I'm not sure how that works. Well, you know, it's that whole don't feed them after midnight thing. Well, is that midnight Eastern Standard Time, or is it the time zone that you're in? I always wondered about that. What if you're in an airplane? When exactly is the witching hour, and why is it defined as an hour? You know, the one person that I've never heard anything about this movie is uh, Robbie Coltrane is in here as Rune, and apparently he's dubbed over as well. So maybe he holds really? a grudge against us, yeah. You know, I, I grew up watching... A lot of Italian horror movies. And so I, I get the idea that sometimes you need to overdub everyone for practical purposes, but, or even like for a commercial reason, like to sell it to another country. But in this movie, it doesn't make any sense. It just seems so arbitrary. Like, why? Yeah, I mean, Robbie Coltrane and Lisette Anthony, we've heard them since. They sound fine. Uh -huh. You can hear them in the behind the scenes. They sound fine. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, to be fair, this was also the era of Sam Jones and Flash Gordon. It's like, I've seen Sam Jones and everything post-Flash Gordon. He sounds fine. I didn't even realize that he was overdubbed until just a oh, second. Oh, yeah, he was. Wow. Yeah. yeah, me neither. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sam Jones was done. Shocker. The Slayers, who just kind of show up out of nowhere, I really like the look of the Slayers. And I used to always think about the Slayers because I had a uh, car that when you roll down the electric window, it sounded exactly like when the Slayers die. <laughs> That's amazing. And then I found out that apparently that noise is taken from uh, at Earth's core, or at the Earth's core, which I did not know. And I think I might have seen that once, but I did not remember that. Well, where did Adderus Core get it from? I don't know. Maybe from actual alien creatures? David, we are not on Earth. We're well, if we're not on Earth, Doc, then where the hell are we? From my observations, dear friend, I can possibly... By Jove! Oh, very interesting. 
what are the Slayers? This is something that I've always found really frustrating is I think the Slayers are great. And as a kid, I found them to be kind of like a little bit creepy. And they remind me of the sort of soldier characters from Beastmaster, who sometimes are just like psychotically violent. But I really wish the movie would have spent more time on them. Are they humanoid? Why do they work with the Beast? Like, I want answers. The way that Alan Dean Foster describes it in the novelization, because I've read this, uh, they are reanimated corpses, basically, with these parasites in the head. Oh. And then when you kill the host body, the parasites just, you know, escape. I love that. And that way you could kill the entire army, but all the parasites get away. They just get new bodies and they come back. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of the Puppet Masters by Heinlein. I could definitely see that being a plausible explanation, at least <laughs> at least in the realm of, of fantasy fiction. I feel like that works, and it it doesn't force you to have this sort of complicated explanation. Like, one of my biggest problems, and I know that lots of people have made fun of this over the years, but one of my biggest problems with Star Wars is always why do they have all these people in the army who are working with Darth Vader? Like, don't they realize that he's evil? And this, this whole explanation makes way more sense because you don't have to have that finagling for why all of these humans would be working for this force that basically devours planets. Cause like Galactus is by himself. Like why, why would he need a force? The stormtrooper thing, that's a whole ball of wax. I mean, my God. It enrages me. Oh, my God. Well, are they just a bunch of clones like we saw the prequel set up, or are they all individuals like we saw Solo and... I mean, we've seen plenty of real-world you know, things where you can get an army of people to follow really bad people given sure. really bad orders. And also, they only blew up that one planet for the first time. <laughs> just that once. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to make Crawl Garried again. That's a good question as far as what the Slayers are, because I know in this, and correct me if I'm wrong, Noel, in the script, the Slayers are actual humans that are in league with the Beast, and then there's another group that are called, what, the Dark Ones or something like that? The Dark Ones, which are kind of more what the Changelings are in this movie. Right, so we've got this whole other thing, because yeah, like, if those parasites, because it seems like the same parasites, it's the same scream when they kill the changelings as it is when they kill the slayers. So I would think that they would use those changelings a lot more. Yeah. That is great. I love that scene so much. Oh God. When the blind emerald seer just collapses in on himself, it's like, Oh, that's so gross. It's, it's such a good effect though. Like watching that as a kid, I was like, all right, this scene is kind of scary. I'm hooked. Probably why they don't use the changelings more is that the slayers, they feel kind of more like mindless drones. Whereas the changelings seem to have some level of in- independent thought, like we even have the one changeling woman who falls in love with Colwyn in the in the in the hour that I've known you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and I even just love the reactions of the sl- of the the changeling of the who becomes the seer, where he's like, I- I've almost got him, I've almost got him, damn it, they took me away from him, you know, and he's like, okay, uh, we'll go and check that, but only you can lead me in. <laughs> And nobody realizes that it seems suspicious. They're all just like, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, that whole scene where they first meet the blind Emerald Seer when he conjures up the fortress and then it gets destroyed, the beast's hand comes in and destroys it. I was so reminded of the whole planeteer scene in uh, Return of the King and that, the you know, if you look into it, then the beast can look back or Sauron can look back. I was just kind of like, oh, 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 that's pretty cool. And then, but even just, you know, with the changeling character of the changeling of the seer when he's killing the seer, just that expression on his face, he... The evil seer almost looks like he's in anguish killing the original version. It's a pretty great sequence. And I, I think that is... It's the, odd and it's good. Yes. I think that's an example of something that really works in the film. And yeah, the rest... I mean, there's so many by-the-numbers scenes here. We've got the quicksand going through that whole thing. Of course, I'm reminded of... Swamps of Sadness. Yes. Artax. Yeah, we never mentioned Never Ending Story. That was a big one. Yes, Never Ending Story and even elements of Princess Bride, I think there are some parallels, but lots of Never Ending Story. I kept expecting Colwyn to say as you wish. I kept waiting for the rodents of unusual size to show up. I wish they had. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ergo's right there, man. Ergo, the, even his name reminds me of what was that little sorcerer thing that would fly around in He-Man? Orko, Orko yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. His name also kind of reminds me of, I forget who wrote it, but someone wrote this really, really funny parody of Lord of the Rings called Board of the Rings. Yeah. Wasn't it National Lampoon's It was National Lampoon, yep. (laughs) But they all have names like that. And it was funny reading the script where he's described as a little person. It's like, I pictured basically Billy Barty in every role he played in the 80s. Because <laughs> Billy Barty played that character in He-Man. He played that character in Legend. He played that character in Willow. <laughs> it's funny because he says certain things in the dialogue that make it seem like he should not be... A- he describes himself as small, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you're a normal-sized adult man. He just got issues, you know, like yeah, if, yeah. if he were to buy a, a truck, it would be like really big and have the jacked up wheels and stuff. You know, he's got issues is what I'm trying to say. I love the explanation for why he has to have this grandiose name and he delivers it totally straight face. Like I'm a small person. I have to have a big name. <laughs> and then the kid says, I'm Titch. And he says, that's not impressive, but adequate. Yeah. I like the relationship between he and Titch, the blind emerald seers. Uh, uh, I guess his helper is what he would be. Yeah, I, I, I like the way this this whole group does pull together as a family. Even though, like, all but five of them are slaughtered by the end, you know? It, I know! Yeah. <laughs> That's something that I totally maybe forgot is a strong word, but something that my brain just kind of glossed over. And when I rewatched it this time, I was like, where the hell is everyone? Did everyone die? Yes, I want to say like five people die in the fortress alone. Yeah. That's such a shame because they do. And I know earlier we were talking about how the fact that there isn't really a strong protagonist with a complex character arc never bothered me because I think of it more as an ensemble film because they're so, like you said, they're so convincing as a family in a way that's really warm and endearing. Yeah, and when we add the Cyclops to it, it just makes it even better, because he's such a fascinating character, and I really like the effects of the Cyclops. Yeah, agreed. There's aspects to it that I like, and aspects to it that I love the character, I love the performance. The makeup is a little bit of a mixed bag, and you can you can visibly see when the actor is blind, and is 
they're like, now walk forward and pick up the spear that someone dropped. And he's like, reach it. He's like, where is it? Where is it? <laughs> Am I getting warm? <laughs> he's like Donald Pleasance in The Great Escape. It's like he has to put it there, back up, and then pick it up like he already knew that it was there. And then there's the Widow of the Web scene, which goes on for quite a while. It is one of the more strikingly mythical scenes in the film. It's my favorite scene in the film, actually. It's so sad. It's so sad, but I love Francesca Ennis so much. One of the things that I find so compelling about it is, you know, the central relationship, as we've kind of talked about, is really flat and predictable. Like, they Mm. meet and in 30 seconds fall in love. They have no real conflict other than he has to get her back. But I feel like this scene with the Widow of the Web gives you this kind of potential for conflict, what could happen or what could go wrong. And I just think it's such a nice parallel relationship that feels way more convincing. We, we have to not dwell on the fact that we lost our relationship so we can save this new potential future one. Here's what could happen if... Coleman and Lissa don't get it together, and if he doesn't rescue her. So are we supposed to figure out that she has had a kid, and that she killed the kid? Yes. Well, as they they reveal it, yeah. They do clearly state it. And so that's why she's the widow of the web. When she says, I killed our child the moment he was born, and this is my punishment. I found it interesting, too, not to dwell on the script too much, but um, and also even just like the uh, Cinema Fantastique article and other articles where they're talking about how they had to reshoot the spider. And apparently the spider was supposed to be a black widow, which ties in widow, widow of the web. And then also a black widow has a hourglass type shape on it. And it's like, okay, that makes so much more sense. So... And that's what's funny, because in the script, it is it is basically, as it describes, it says it's a black widow, but transparent crystal with a red hourglass visible. And then whenever it would get angry, the sands of that hourglass would fill the rest of the spider and make it red. That sounds cool to me. For the most part in the script, it is what we got. I mean, if you're going to do it, just go go ahead. That's all right. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what the original effects were. I mean, was it was it that they changed the design, or was it just the animation wasn't working, or... I think they changed the design is what it sounded like, because the guy who ended up shooting it uh, sounds like he shot most of it already, and then they're like, no, 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 we're going to do it this way, and they had to reshoot everything. Well, when you're encountering a giant crystal spider, you want to shoot it as many times as you can. I I love that set, though. I think it's so, like, even though the spider does look a little like, well, we tried, but we didn't get this effect quite right, the set is just so incredible. The sound effect for the spider really works for me. And just seeing Freddie Jones himself doing a lot of that climbing and everything. I was reading that they said that he couldn't use any kind of like wire or safety harness. And it, it looks great, but like, be careful with him. He's, he's precious. Run it up his sleeve, have the cord be connecting right where his hand is. So he's sliding it along the rope. That's all you need to do. Ah, uh, see, they needed someone who can solve problems like you on the set. <laughs> I know. Where was I during the making of Krull? I was one. That's no excuse. If I could, you know, tweak anything in this movie, or actually even to your to your idea of having like a prequel series, if we could get more of the Widow of the Web and more Francesca Annis, I that is, I think, what is really missing. She's just so wonderful. 
I was really kind of hoping that they, because there's a, a big effect that takes place in a mirror where it's her younger in the reflection and her older as the, the, the person who's looking at the mirror. I was really kind of hoping that they would have done that as a practical effect rather than a blue screen effect and had two actresses, Francesca Annis and someone made up to look like the old Francesca Annis and have them move at the same time to make it look a little bit more real. But that, that blue screen sometimes gets a little distracting. Yeah, it's it, especially because this was the era where they still didn't have clean lines, clean matte lines. Oh yeah, when we see Corwin in uh, the Beast Temple or the Beast Fortress later on, it's just like, why are you doing this? That just that 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 whole climax is so slapped together. Yeah, that feels like they really didn't know what they were doing. And now I can't get the glaive out. Why you abandoned me, glaive? <laughs> <laughs> and he keeps trying to use the Force to get it out. Yep. There are some clunky parts, but I I find them charming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing with the spikes in the walls coming out, I was just like, okay, this so reminds me of the trash compactor in Star Wars, but okay. My only issue with that scene is, dude, it's just a knife. Leave it. Yeah, really, right? Yeah. But I love the way the actors are conveying the the, the actors are really selling that, oh, these things are pushing into us. Yeah, and that's the, I mean, I feel like that's the whole movie, is they have such a strong cast that even though plenty of ridiculous things happen and the effects don't always work, it's the actors make it just so believable and endearing. And even when there are problems, you're like, okay, I'm still going to stay with this cast. I trust them. Yeah, I never abandon this movie while I'm watching it. There's nothing that's wrong enough that is going to take me out of it. I am with this movie 100% of the way. Maybe I get a little bored during the scene where they're resupplying themselves, but that's about it. And even that's a pretty quick one. And there's that great sort of little dialogue about Liam Neeson and his wives in every outpost. That was another one where the script solved some problems for me because that was supposed to take place at an inn because I kept wondering. Because in the script, we actually do visit villages, you know? (laughs) We get to see a village. We get to see an inn. We get to meet the barmaid who's being picked on by her boss. And she's the one who is there with Corwin and trying to seduce him, yada, yada. And that's also where they get the saddles for the fire mares, because when they show up and start wrangling those fire mares, I'm just like, where the fuck did all these guys have saddles from? What is that? They they had to catch a different set of horses, just regular horses that they then tanned and hide, you know, tan the hides, make saddles out of. Oh, okay. And then they got to catch these horses. So they had to like catch two groups of horses in the same day. And make leather out of them. Do you know how long that would take? Yeah. <laughs> That would take yeah, like but the months. Cyclops knows shortcuts. He's a Cyclops. He knows <laughs> things. That was the other thing that that always made me pause, because the whole thing of he knows when he's supposed to die, where he's supposed to die, and if he goes against that, it's going to cause him great pain, but then he ends up showing up at the fortress anyway, and he just seems fine. He doesn't seem like he's in well, great no, pain. It, it does give him great pain, because he's slowly crushed to death. Oh, well, there is that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He could have sat there, you know, in that field and died peacefully, like just, you know, just drift away. But he decided to go save his friends and get squashed. And unlike unlike Sloth and Goonies, he doesn't come back. But I, I feel like he's really embracing the true, like, Klingon warrior spirit. Like, why die like a coward in a field while your friends are being killed? It's sacrifice, yeah. Yeah. He's actually the only one who makes a real sacrifice. <laughs> Though apparently it takes a lot out of Ergo to be a tiger for such a long time. I mean, Inir makes a pretty big sacrifice, too. 
literally like having to climb down a mountain as your life is literally slipping away in your hand. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's one of those added details that I really like. That's a fair point, and I also hope to never have to go mountain climbing while dying. It, it seems exhausting. I think just mountain climbing in general I could do without. Though I love that the, like, the two main standouts among Torquil's people are Liam Neeson and Robbie Coltrane, both in like their first movies, who nobody knew, and yet they still get like farewell death scenes. Yeah, and their characters are great. I mean, they're... They're the adventure really, was worth it. Yeah, they're memorable and compelling. And did so many of them have to die in other movies? And I know Lord of the Rings is great at doing this, like especially with you know something like Boromir's death scene. In other movies, I feel like key characters' deaths are used as these emotionally impactful moments where somebody's making a sacrifice, and it reminds you of what is at stake, and blah blah blah. But at the end of this movie, it's just like, all right, we're going to kill off everyone suddenly, except for these like core five characters. And it just feels like a waste. Like, I genuinely forgot that everyone dies. Well, and part of that's they built such a family and then to see very little of that family makes it out in the end. And it's all your lead cast. Instead of seeming upset about it, those assholes are sitting in a field full of flowers, basically laughing. Whereas, yeah, in the in the script, yeah, they have a line about how that you know, fallen fortress is now going to basically be the burial chamber of all the friends we lost. That kind of hits a little bit closer to home than we're going to laugh in the flowers. They needed to cheer up so the Lee couple could go make their babies and those babies could rule the galaxy. Yeah, and even though Freddy's dead, he manages to give us the final voiceover, which is kind of a nice thing that he would do that, record that before yes. he died. Yeah, yeah, it's also I know. Very Obi Wan. Very <laughs> Obi Wan. Yeah, I was expecting him, his voice to come back and be like, you know, use the fire and burn him. You know, like when Corwin becomes the human use torch. The grave, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now is the time. You are ready now. Take the fire from the water. Now I kind. Now I kind of wish that that had happened. <laughs> well, that that's again one of the interesting things about the script was he didn't die in the window of the web scene and actually continued on to the third act. And he actually got a final standoff against the beast himself, you know? He, so that's that's what I think he deserves. I, I always felt a little, like, affronted that he dies so quickly, mostly because I love him as an actor, and I think he's one of the strongest characters in the movie. Give us another half an hour with him. Would it kill you? And I would actually like to have seen how that would play. I love it on paper, the whole the psionic battle of wills between him and the beast and the beast ultimately folding his glaive down and breaking off the blades and basically turning his own weapon against an ear. You know, that's, that's a very striking way for him to go down. Yeah. Why couldn't we have had that? Because the world is a bad, terrible place. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with cinematographer Peter Shusinski after these brief messages. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks his little eyeballs yep. out. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There are some butts. Yep, killings. Yep, butt. Yep, killings. Butt. Yep, killings. It's over 90% cheek, that's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... 
Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for classy broads and a token dude talking horror. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to... Love That Album podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. You talked about how George Lucas had seen privilege and wanted to work with you. Can you tell me your experience of working on Empire Strikes Back? I can just tell you a little bit. I was actually called for the first film in that series, the Hazong, one that was shot, Star Wars. And I went for an interview with George Lucas at 20th Century Fox in London. And the first thing I said was that you probably don't want me for this film because you should be talking to the gentleman who was the DOP on, on 2001. Uh, yes, you're probably right, was the, was the reply, but he's not available. I said, the trouble is I've, I don't have any experience in visual effects, and your film, I'm sure, is going to need a lot of visual effects. But he said, well, I'm, I like your work, so uh, let's think about it. But the studio prevailed upon him as he was a, a young director with only one film behind him. They thought he should be paired with... Uh, and director photography with more experience. They chose an extremely good director of photography with lots of experience, including working with Polanski on some great movies, but they didn't get on with each other. This uh, the DOP was heard to say that he was working with a bunch of amateurs and the film would never be a success. Well, he couldn't have been more wrong. As you know, the film was an enormous success. And when it came to the sequel, uh, George put my name forward and suggested it to to Irvin Kirshner, who was going to direct the movie. And I met with Irvin Kirshner. And I said, well, I still don't have any visual effects experience. And George said, it doesn't really matter. We'll fly you to the, the ranch in San Francisco and you can talk with all the effects people. And he was right. 
I was merely intimidated by a lot of terms like rear projection, front projection, blue screen, um, matte painting, uh, because I didn't understand what they meant. I thought they were things I could never master, but in fact, they're all to handle as a cinematographer, as long as you can imagine the final result with the help of the visual effects people. I found that they were not so difficult to handle. That must have been such a, a different world for you at that point. Yes, it was. Through, throughout the six months of shooting, I felt in many ways that every day I was going to an infant school and playing with large toys. So I was thrilled every day. What was it like working with Irvin Kirshner? Because I've heard different takes on him. Oh, he was a uh, delightful and charming man with a good sense of humor. He loved to chuckle and laugh. He was very quick-witted. It kept coming up with new ideas, almost too fast for anybody to keep up, and almost he was almost falling over his ideas. It was a little bit of a problem to keep to keep <laughs> to keep up with him, but he he was great to work with. And so it must have been a little easier then to get into something like Crawl, where you already had that experience. I think that was uh, a year or two later. Yes, yes. Well, I just seen. Prior to meeting Peter Yates, I'd just seen a movie called Breaking Away, which captivates me. I, I really like that movie a lot. And it's, it, it lives, it survives pretty well when you see it now, too. So I hardly bothered to, um, to pay attention to the, the script. Of course, I read it, but I thought, yes, a really fine director I'm going to work with. Um, and he, he turned out to be a, a very civilized, civil, person, but the script, I should have paid more attention to the script because it it was not a great script, to be honest. It tried to combine the, the producers, or the producing studio who wanted to make, to take advantage of several genres at the same time. They wanted to combine, make a fusion of sword and sorcery and science fiction and they wanted to make a lot of money out of accessories, toys, which they thought they could sell because they'd watched, they'd seen how successful Star Wars had been selling ancillary goods associated with with the film. But they they had a mishmash of a, of a script, quite frankly. It was fun to make because we again we had big sets, uh, a very a very nice director to work with. That side of it was terrific. Uh, I was great, but I liked my my ambition was always to work on movies that combined all the crafts together to make a really good whole. Like I have to admit that that film is uh, not one of the best I've worked on. Yeah, I had great fun with it. I must say, uh, I suggested that this planet we were on might have more than one sun, so I created two suns. And we had a, a huge set to, to light for me to photograph. I felt very lucky to be involved with it. Well, we had an extremely talented designer who had recently, I think, done more than one film with John Houston. I'm very curious, what was it like to work with David Cronenberg? Well, that was an ongoing professional relationship, which became like a professional marriage. It spanned 27 years, and I hope I hope we haven't seen the very last of it. Although David hasn't made a film since for six or seven years now, but I sincerely hope he'll make another one. 
he was always challenging in the way that he chose subjects that were so different from the previous one. He became, he evolved a lot as, as we worked together. In that, when we first when we first started to work together, he was his approach was quite classical, and not not the, the treatment of the, the, the themes he chose were not classical, but his approach to making the film was quite uh, classical. In other words, he'd ask for a, a wide shot, and then a medium shot, and then a close up, and then a, a closer close shot, of, and cover he would cover each actor very thoroughly. And the process would take, say, on Dead Ringers, the first film I made with him, it, I think we probably shot for 11 or 12, 12 weeks. As the years went by, his, he became more and more spare in his treat, treatment of, uh, of the film. And he, we ended up on, shoot, when we shot Maps of the Stars, shooting very no coverage at all, and only one take of each shot. Uh, but I always knew how he was, he knew what he was going to do with the material, which uh, unfortunately is not the case with, with the majority of directors. People want to shoot a lot because they want to be able to change their minds or be ultra flexible in the cutting room. David seemed to uh, take pleasure in um, locking the editor in, in a sense. To I don't mean locking him into a room, but not offering any choices to the editor. The effects work on Dead Ringers, just the doubling of Jeremy Irons, is still impressive today. Yeah, yeah, we had limited means. It was not a large budget film. Obviously, we had to create the illusion on that um, the one actor was playing two actors, was playing two characters, twins. By the very simple means, most of the time, either by using a double in the shoulder and shooting over the shoulders of the double, and flipping the camera off and shooting the scene twice. And occasionally, we had recourse to using motion control, which I'd never seen before, I'd never handled before. Probably only allowed ourselves six or seven shots with that tape technology as it was quite lengthy to prepare each time but it it created a magic illusion magical illusion of two actors uh, fluidly playing with the, in front of the camera we were able to pan from one to the other in, a, in an apparently seamless shot kind of funny to look at your CV and to see how you were talking about how you hadn't had that much experience with special effects and then as your career has gone on it's been more and more effects heavy kind of work as you've gone through like Mars Attacks or Red Planet. I haven't looked it out Um, one gets categorized and put into boxes pigeonholed we say if you shoot a science fiction film that's successful uh, Everybody wants you to shoot science fiction films. And I'm not um, particularly drawn to science fiction films. I just I just want to make a good movie, whatever the genre is. So I don't, um, I don't disdain science fiction, but most science fiction films don't, don't attract me. I like all kinds of genres. I love comedy, although I haven't been offered any comedy films. Um, just great, great writing to start with is what what I look for. But it's true, I've shot a few science fiction films. 
I seem to remember there being some pretty good laughs in Where the Heart Is, if memory serves. Yes, yes. But yeah, I wouldn't say overt comedy. Probably Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yes. That must be an interesting one. I mean, to to have both the fans of Empire Strikes Back and Rocky Horror Picture Show must be a kind of a strange mix of people who want to talk to you and get your autograph. Well, I just feel very fortunate that I've made one or two films which have pleased so many people. It's very, it's very gratifying to to be reminded that these uh, works on a few films which people still love to to watch. Well, yeah, there's quite a few films of yours that I've watched many, many times. I mean, I'm a big fan of Existence. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, I just saw a Blu-ray of that. That's relatively recent, and it still looks good. Yeah, and it's still it's a good movie above all. It's a good movie above all. And I have to say, the look of Crash, it just, it captures that, that, that chrome shine and just the, the coldness of so many things that are happening in that movie so well. Yes, yes. I've just worked on, a, on the timing of a Blu-ray of that. So it's going to be released, it's going to be released very soon by a company called Turbo. It's a German-based company. What else are you working on these days? I'm not shooting a movie at the moment um, because I'm finding it very difficult to find a good project to work on. I I decided some years ago that I don't want to work on movies I'd never go and see. Never never want to go and see, I mean. So I'm waiting for a a, a good script. I've I've read one in the last year, but it's not funded yet. So I'm hoping it's going to be funded. Well, yeah, you've seen the industry change so much over your career. Yes, yeah, I have. The way of the technologies, the technology has changed a lot, but the essential demand of um, what is needed for a good film, in other words, a really good, really good writing to start with, that's not that that hasn't changed, and the tools haven't really changed the the, the needs. Uh, what's to be done in cinematography. They've just made it, um, the new tools have made it more flexible. I love, I fell in love with digital photography as soon as um, I started to use it. Do you still do a lot of photography these days? Stills? Oh, stills I do, yes. I I meant cinematography, but yes, I do stills very seriously. I published a book uh, three or four years ago and yeah, I, I love taking still photographs. I work on it all the time, uh, even when I'm not shooting the photographs. I'm working on on the photographs um, on my computer. Well, Mr. Sushinsky, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. You're very welcome. Likewise, for me to talk with you. So, thank you very much for calling me.
All right, we are back, and we are talking about Krull. And let's talk about the dragons of Krull, which is that mysterious script that we kept talking about earlier. It feels like there is a lot of things going on with this movie. So where should we even begin? I started collecting screenplays when I was in my mid-teens, and this was one that I got around the late 90s, early 2000s. And it's like, I I had seen Krull a few times before then. I just kind of got this on a whim, and then I started reading it. I'm like, oh my god, it's like a whole new world is opened unto me. It's such a different script. I mean, there's things in it that I, I think don't work and, you know, we, they were fine to cut, but there's, there's so much more world building and character and stuff that I really enjoy. Yeah. It's such a shame that that didn't, and I know that we've talked about this already a little bit, but it's such a shame that some of that didn't make it into the film solely for reasons of establishing depth and letting you know exactly what world they're in. Cause in the movie, you're just kind of plopped into this kingdom and given like the most minimal backstory possible. And at least we get to see more flirting between Lissa and Corwin. I love their first scene together. Yeah, It's so nice. And then I especially love the whole thing about he's dirty and grimy and like everyone is like, well, she's marrying a warrior. She'll have to get used to it. And her first line is like, like hell I do. <laughs> And she wants, and the whole the whole thing is is her giving him a bath, and it's it's really funny and charming. You actually feel like this really nice bond between. I love I love how they're talking about their anxieties about you know, man, I I was expecting something really bad here. You're 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 not that. Yeah, because this is essentially an arranged marriage, and we don't they don't know each other. And the way that it is in the movie, I'm like, do they know each other? Do they not know each other? I guess maybe they kind of do. I don't really know. But in this one, they make it very explicit. No, they don't know each other. And there's the flirting and there's all this stuff going on. And then I like there's also a, um, so we actually meet Lissa's mother, the queen, and there's discussion of her and the fathers. And there's a window and you can see them in the distance, like kind of again, flirting with each other. It's like, okay, this is really nice. And it's a nice echo of the near widow of the web of we need to save this relationship to kind of make up for the one that we lost. And, you know, cause it was Lissa's mother was in love with Colwyn's father, but she was arranged to marry this other guy who just seems to be okay with that in this script. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> and it's this whole thing of like, I was never able to be with you, but now our children can come together type thing. It's a little weird, but it's, you know, fairy tale, you know, mythic fantasy type stuff. It's, it works. Well, and also plays into the widow of the web thing too, where it's just like this whole idea of lost love. And finally, Lissa and Corwin are the only two people who were meant to be together that can actually get together and stay together. So then the beast ripping them apart is what adds this huge conflict where no, no, there's, they're set to be together. Whereas all these other couples were supposed to be together, or could have been together and they weren't. It's Colwyn with an L. Colwyn, not Corwin. Did they change it for the movie? I don't know. I thought it was Corwin. Is it Corwin? No, it's Colwyn with an L. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. I, I only know that because I went through the script in great detail last night. But I mean, and then also that there's this even broader historical uh, sense of history repeating itself, where it's like a thousand years ago, there was this king and queen and the glaive and, you know, she was named Lissa. And that's where the whole this, this, this name of from history comes from. And that was the last time the beast had attacked. The beast had sent its initial wave of forces and 
they were ultimately driven off by this king and this queen. And now a thousand years later, the beast has now come himself with his own fortress to accompany his next wave of forces. And now this new king and queen need to arise out of these other failed relationships. This one relationship needs to come together to save this world. Very much like Sauron was around and then we drove him back and managed to kill him. But then the ring survived, yada, 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 cut to however many it's years later. Yeah. In contrast, I think that's one of the most frustrating things about the film is their relationship is basically, and I don't think we've talked about this yet, but their relationship is basically established as their, it is an arranged marriage to sort of unify these two warring kingdoms, but the movie presents it as it's their idea and they've never met each other. But even though their fathers disagree, they, for some reason, have taken it upon themselves to say, okay, we're going to get married and unite this kingdom, which I I get that that's sort of a great moral goal and it's very kind of lofty and the right thing to do. But in almost every single other fantasy film and in a lot of fiction, it's always the opposite. It's these kids are being forced into a political marriage and they do have that anxiety that you talk about in the script, which to not have it in the movie and to just have it sort of be where like they're teenagers or maybe they're in their like late teens, early twenties, but they don't, they don't care at all that they're just going to meet and marry a stranger. Like it's a little ridiculous. You know, millennials do things differently. Well, and speaking of King Arthur, there was actually a character in the script called Lord Mordred, who was Alyssa's godfather. And there's this whole thing about them being this, what is it, like a clan or kingdom that has something to do with leopards. And then when she's in the beast's inner workings, she conjures up a leopard. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Well, yeah, it's not that she conjures up. It's just that when the fortress is in a jungle setting, she's still allowed to look outside and she sees a leopard out there. Oh, so the leopard and just kind of joins. With it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and becomes this kind of protective figure for her. And then it's, yeah, there's this whole logic to why all this stuff is happening with Lissa in that glaives are basically psychic tuning forks and can allow not only do you psionically control the glaive, but it can allow you to get like a psychic connection. So you have bits where Colwyn is connecting to Lissa and communicating with Lissa and she's feeding him information on where the fortress is. And it's only when you know the beast realizes this and starts forcing her deeper and deeper into the fortress, down into the tunnels, where not only can she not see the outside, but it's starting to sever the connection. And that's when they need to go see the Emerald Seer. And it's this interesting thing of like, they actually do have these additional moments of bonding and communication. And then that gradually gets taken away from them. Yeah, it's very The Last Jedi. That makes so much more sense. That would make the whole having the glaive at all so much more plausible. And you wouldn't even need to do that many more effects to just like have some dialogue and have a scene establishing the psychic capabilities. Like, and that, and that's like when you get like into the battles with the beast in the end, they're like full on Akira Esper battles, you know, where it's like people have like force fields around them and are like flinging pieces and throwing energy waves at each other and like literally breaking off pieces of the tower and throwing them at each other. And it's, it's a very visually dynamic sequence. Yeah. And, and again, we have multiple glaives. Uh, Inir has his own glaive. Uh, 
Colwyn is given the ancient glaive from that kingdom a thousand years ago. Lyssa actually makes her own glaive, which allows her to then like reestablish her communication with Colwyn. And those glaives have four points instead of six, so they look very much more like Christian crosses, I think. And so it's interesting how it's more about these people have these powers within themselves, and these glaives are just basically like these tuning forks that allow them to channel it. I think that's so much richer, and it's frustrating that that didn't make it into the final film. What I really wanted to see was <laughs> them making a giant venison pie, because it's not gooseberry pie that he's Ten obsessed with. Ten feet wide, five feet tall. <laughs> yeah, that that Ergo, the dwarf in this version, manages to sink into and eat his way out of. Sounds pretty gross, but... <laughs> it sounds disgusting. I love that the Cyclops and Titch do that as thanks for turning into a puppy that one time. We're going to make him a gigantic pie, and then he'll swim in it and everybody will eat around him. Ah, it really does not sound hygienic at all. I'm really glad that that was not brought over to the final script. That's, I mean, if they made him a pie, that'd be fine. But you know, I, I don't really need to go that far. And that, that's one of those bits where it's like, oh yeah, Stanford Sherman did write for the '60s Batman. Yeah, <laughs> almost all the Penguin episodes were Stanford. I don't know what what his attachment was to Penguin, but he did he did all those. <laughs> well, that's you know, Yates was like, hey, get Stan Sherman on this. He's got a great imagination. I mean, he did Batman in any which way you can. Doesn't get much better than that, except maybe Ice Pirates. Uh, yeah. Which came later. Like, I also like with the Slayers, and we were talking about Lord, Lord Modred, is you have this whole thing of this, you have the Dark Ones, which prowl at night. They're these shape-shifting creatures, they're clawed, red eyes, they stick to the shadows because sunlight hurts them. And then you have the human army of the Slayers, and the Slayers are humans that have pledged their loyalty to the Beast, and we have this kind of you know, think about how it's like, oh, it's it's their greed, their thirst for power. But then when you actually confront Mordred, it's like, that's the only way he wouldn't kill us. It's, it's like the Slayers have this kind of – I almost wish the script had gotten into this more where it's a mixture of people who are genuinely looking for power and people who it's like, if we didn't pledge to this, our village would get raised to the ground. My family would be dead. I would be dead. Because he spares, I believe, Liz's life and then he ends up paying the price for it. Lord yeah, Mordred, Colin's. that is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Colwyn's life. Okay. Yeah, and then he gets killed out by the Dark Ones. Yeah, and there's even a moment in the actual film where after they capture Lissa, I believe, they go back and all the Slayers are like, hurrah, hurrah, kind of thing. And I'm like, no, no, Slayers shouldn't speak in this world. And that's, again, where you can feel like they're changing their mind on a lot of things as they're going along. Like, I know um, like Ken Marshall talked about how like for that whole castle sequence, he practiced a ton of choreography. They were going to do a big Errol Flynn style fight scene. And then they finalized the costume of the Slayers like the day before. And the stunt men only then found out, oh yeah, we can't do any of those movements. So that's why the Slayer is just kind of like stiffly like hacking up and down while, while Ken Marshall's leaping around going like, ha, huzzah, ha, you know. I'm sure maybe not to everyone, but to me that scene is a little bit like accidentally comical because of that because he's just so limber <laughs> the contrast is a little unfortunate yeah there's a few bits where it's just like the choreography it's just there's, there's like for all the exciting dynamic stuff it's like they don't put any choreography in any of the fight scenes there, there's weird stuff like there's the bit in the fortress at the end where Torquil is on one side of a passageway and they're firing lasers down it and he has to get to the other side so he does that whole jump tuck and roll but it's like he jumps, tucks, and rolls, and he's still like three feet away from the other side and just has to kind of scurry over. And I love that instead of reshooting that, they just like, they're like, you know what? This is fine. 
<laughs> I mean, I like fun. the one bit where it's like the stuntman missed jumping on a horse and they left it in, you know? Yes, <laughs> that is delightful. Yeah, that worked. That worked. Yeah, and then, yeah, that that's my biggest thing with the script is I, I think the script still needed a little bit of work, a little bit of additions here and there, but there's so much more history and depth and, like, everything having deeper connections and the character history and all that. I, I, I miss a lot of that stuff in the movie now that I've read that script. Yeah, there was a nice article in Starlog, November 83, I think Ed Naha, who's been on the show before, uh, wrote this piece, where <laughs> – they're talking about Peter Yates, who we were talking a little bit before we started recording, has had just this amazing filmography. So it says, Yates, a prolific British director, is best known for some very American movies, Bullet, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Breaking Away, and The Deep. And then he says, Kroll's producers very patiently waited two months for me to finish my movie and read their script. Yates explains, when I finally started reading it, I got to page eight and saw an underwater sequence filled with dolphins, visions of the deep flood in my head. Forget it. I'm not going underwater again. My, ref my wife read it, though, and loved it. And then later on in the article, he says, uh, from the outset, the script was rumored to be a major stumbling block. According to Silverman, however, those stories are highly exaggerated. The story of Krull hasn't changed at all, he insists. It was originally called The Dragons of Krull because at the time we envisioned a movie as having a more realistic medieval tone. The Beast, for example, isn't a dragon now. As Sherman originally described him, he was far more reptilian. We wound up changing the title because it didn't really describe the script, but the essence of the original script is still there which i kind of don't agree with him on i mean we read the third draft so there were no dolphins and there were no i wish i could find those first two, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah even later on uh the z anthony as you were saying uh i was disappointed of at some of the changes made states lizette anthony at one point they had me coming back as an evil character great but then they changed it all because they didn't want Lissa to be less than pure. I thought it was a little boring. So, yeah, I wish that she had had a little bit more to do as well. It definitely is kind of when you watch a lot of these fantasy movies back to back. One of the things that I find to be the most annoying and probably the most frustrating is that it seems like the main female characters get kind of pushed into those really sort of like bland roles where they don't have a whole lot to do. And it just, it's like, do they all have to be like that? Yeah, she's a damsel in distress, and that's all she can be. I mean, that reminds me a lot of, of Willow, which is a film I very much enjoy, but again, had entire swaths of the script were filmed, but then cut. And a lot, a large part of that was, I'm trying to remember her name, but it's it's the was it Bav Morda? No, no, it was, it was that was the evil queen, but it was like the evil queen Sorsha who had the relationship with the uh, Val Kilmer character. There was so much more development of her character, her backstory, um, finding out that her mother had entirely lied to her about her history, and there was, she was such a much richer character, and all that got cut out. I mean, she also, even with all that cut out, she's one of the few counterexamples, I yeah. think, where she does wind up becoming a love interest, but sort of from the opposite angle. Well, and that, and that she also makes a face turn for being a bad guy, too. Exactly. Yeah, she's great. 
I cannot recommend the Blu-ray of this movie because I have it both on Blu-ray and DVD, and the DVD has tons of extras, and the Blu-ray I bought has nothing. It is just the movie. Oh, that's a shame. That's insulting. It's very insulting. The DVD has the That's Hollywood episode that I was talking about before. It's got a motion comic uh, of the comic book that you mentioned, the Marvel adaptation, I believe. There's a audio commentary from... Peter Yates, Ken Marshall cut in, and also Lizette Anthony cut in. There's another audio commentary that is basically just reading a Cinema Fantastique article, which has a lot of, you know, some of these other things that we read in Starlog and Fangoria, but it's a nice article, and it only lasts about halfway through the movie, so it's kind of a weird audio commentary, but it still works. At least at least get several of the articles. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, and not nothing. I don't understand why certain companies do that. Like, I know in terms of UK companies, Studio Canal will often put out these like really incredible, like important art house films, and then there will just be no extras. It's like, why even put it out at all? I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been like a newer version that has like, there's no retrospective documentaries. Um, and it was interesting, again, you get to hear uh, from Lisette Anthony on on the commentary, where she was, she's just kind of mild about the film, just kind of telling some background stories, and then you had sent me the article about how that was one of the most miserable experiences. Yeah, she was not happy. Because <laughs> they treated me like crap, they cut all my stuff out, the, direct, the director wasn't nice, they dug me over, yeah. Yeah, what an awful experience. I mean, I like her in the film, even though her character is limited, and- it kind of surprises me. And I know that she did go on to do some other things. Like she's great in Dracula dead and loving it, but it surprises me that neither of those two leads had bigger careers. And yeah, I mean, Ken Marshall just kind of settled into character acting roles. Lisette, Lisette has had really good prominent roles in like indie British movies, but yeah, has never really taken off. It, it is surprising. It is very surprising and disappointing. Yeah. It's a real shame because she's got, timing she's got the, the talent to do a lot of stuff well and then you learn about the late 80s incident with harvey weinstein you wonder if that had anything to do with it yeah that i'm sure yeah was a contributing factor two years ago when me too was coming out and um there were the stories about weinstein and it was just like oh remember all those great actresses that you used to see in the 80s and 90s well there's a reason why you don't see them now and it's like oh fuck yeah it's horrifying like to think that somebody's whole career could just one minute the light switch was up and now it's off. Steering back to the script, uh, there were some other interesting bits. Like a lot of the obstacles that they face are very different. Like instead of the quicksand sequence, it's it's the um, what is it the the swamp of betrayal where if you touch the waters, you suddenly think everyone around you is betraying you. Like. Colwyn hits the waters and he sees that like Torkoal and Lissa are getting married and Yanir is selling them out. And it's this whole scene where he turns on the team. Right. And then one of the slayers gets dipped in the water and he turns on everybody. Well, and then that's, that's the extra twist was also in reality, the Robbie Coltrane character does sell them out. And that's why they have to steer into the swamps by, by getting paid off by a group of slayers. And then the Slayers hit the water and all start killing each other. And then they also kill the Robbie Coltrane character. It's so frustrating to hear about all the things that we could have had in this film. And as I said, I love it. And I do find it fascinating and endearing. But it could have been so much more complex if some of these things had made it to the final like shooting script. 
Well, and then even the Beast. I mean, some of the production stills of the Beast, I'm like, oh, that kind of looks pretty cool. But they really just hide what he looks like. They are constantly shooting him at a distance or through those Vaseline-smeared lenses that you mentioned before. We never really get a good glimpse of him. And the character design was supposed to be basically, you know, his organs are on the outside and so they had all of these different remote servos and stuff that were like pumping blood and making his lungs expand and stuff i mean it doesn't make a lot of sense biologically but you know that 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 wasn't conveyed no it wasn't conveyed at all i mean because we can't see the guy i think part of it is it's kind of a collection of stuff without any character to it and it does look kind of com- when, you, when you actually see the the stills of it, it looks a little comical just how large the head is because <laughs> it makes the rest of the body look small and it's kind of like a young you, know, you young whippersnappers type of type of look to it. So it's like I can see they're trying to figure something. I I think they just didn't when when they decided we're not going to do a dragon anymore because not only had Dragon Slayer come out and bond, but Dragon Slayer also did a dragon effect that was really really good. And it's kind of like how do we compete with that? They never quite figured out what to try instead. I'm trying to remember who it was, if it was Stephen Grimes, the production designer, or if it was the special effects guy, but I think it was the effects. I think they were originally supposed to have the guy who did the effects in The Elephant Man. Here's another Freddie Jones connection. And then he ended up quitting. I read creative differences, quote unquote, (laughs) and then I also read that he couldn't uh that the timing was all screwed up and so he couldn't commit to the timing and whatever ended up the guy who came in had six weeks to come up with all the production design of like the slayers and the the spider and all these kind of things and that's another really bad thing so of course the beast is going to suffer from that as well well, and I think if if they'd even played up more the fact that this kind of feels like a medieval fantasy that's been invaded by Lovecraft, go even further with that. Yeah, and that that I think is the best way to describe it. Like, I, I've tried to explain it to people who have never seen it, and it's like, come on, it's been almost 40 years since it came out. Like, how have you not seen Krull yet? But there definitely is that really fascinating Lovecraft element that I think makes it feel unique or at least it's trying to do something different. And I really do like could not agree more. I wish they took that further. Yeah. And you know, you already have that kind of dark twist to it with like, I mean, the slayers are just kind of a, you know, they're a drone soldier design, but just the way they die with the whole thing bursting out of the skull and burrowing into the ground is like, that's a very just strikingly bizarre image, you know, and and even like stuff that the changelings do, or the more bizarrely disturbing that it gets, the more interesting it is. Well, and that's also, I think, what kind of reminds me of Beastmaster is how there are these just really weird, unsettling elements that come from out of nowhere and break that sort of established fantasy trope outline. Like the giant flesh-eating bat creatures or the uh, nude yes. women with the old heads, you know? Exactly. Those flesh-eating bat creatures scared the crap out of me as a kid. They still scare me. Our hero was born from a cow. <laughs> oh, yeah. What the fuck, man? Have but you ever done Beastmaster, Mike? We have not. Uh, well, I Just think putting it out there. Yeah, I think you know who you need to invite back for Beastmaster. <laughs> if <laughs> only I could get I an interview with Rip Torn. I'm would- sure you could get Mark Singer. That'd be good. You definitely could get Mark Singer, and you could ask him about Beastmaster too. 
You can ask her about the TV series. Exactly. And about the best <laughs> the best explanation for what HBO means, which is, hey, Beastmaster's <laughs> on. <laughs> I uh, would definitely be asking him about one of my favorite Mark Singer films, If You Could See What I Hear. Which I've never seen. By the way, have you ever seen the old 70s Taming of the Shrew with Mark Singer? I have not. No. It, it was it was a live it was a a live play version that aired on Canadian TV, where he played. I'm trying to remember the the lead, the lead guy who's hired to basically tame the girl. He is just he's basically shirtless for the entire role, <laughs> and is just doing Shakespearean theater while being Mark Singer. That sounds incredible. It is it is an amazing sequence. Sounds great. I'll have to track that one down. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. This is the voice of British resistance. The German conquest of England has brought with it everything which loyal Englishmen despise. We must fight them whenever and wherever we can. What would have happened if the German army had crossed the English Channel? army has successfully invaded England. With the capitalist and communist tyrants driven out, the English people have welcomed us and their new freedom under National Socialism. As it was in every occupied country, so it was in England. There were those who collaborated. National Socialism offers them a new philosophy. A new way of life. There were those who resisted and fought back. The appalling thing about fascism is that you've got to use fascist methods to get rid of it. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at It Happened Here. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Noel. Sam, what is keeping you busy these days? Recently, I did a liner essay for the Eureka release of The Incident, which is an amazing and terrifying thriller set in a subway car. Um, and I did a commentary track for La Marginal, which is a Jean-Paul Belmondo 80s action extravaganza. And I also started a new podcast called The Evil Eye, which is all about goth movies. And Noel, what's keeping you busy? Oh, well, over at Schumacast, the Joel Schumacher series, we just posted Dying Young. And now I'm working on 2000 Malibu Road, the Aaron Spelling primetime soap opera that Joel Schumacher directed all six episodes of. Wow, I can't say I've ever heard of that one. Starring Jennifer Beals and Drew Barrymore. 
Wow. And then you do more than just the Shuma cast, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Masters of Carpentry, we actually just recorded our episode on Halloween 2018, so that'll be coming out Halloween this year. I'm going to start working on the uh, the Rob Zombie Halloweens. We finally got to the point where we have to talk about those. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> hey, that also led to doing an episode on Halloween 3D, the unproduced script by Todd Farmer and Patrick Lussier, which is horrendous. Mm, big surprise. And then nothing really new on any of my other shows from when I was last on. Uh, and I'm not sure when this episode comes out, but July 4th to July 7th, I'm going to be at Convergence in Minneapolis, where I've got six panels that I'm going to be on, including the films of 1999 and discussions of sequels and remakes. Fantastic. Oh, that's why you're doing all the 1999 films. Okay. Filling in my gaps. Well, make sure you watch Wild Zero, dude. I'll try. Oh. It's so good. I find it funny that when I ask for people what were the most important ones, the most votes went for election. Huh. I've, I somehow have never seen election. Uh, I think I did, but it really didn't stick with me. A lot of people wanted to see election, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I just saw, I just saw being John Malkovich for the first time. That was a thing. I'm sorry. Uh, I hate that movie so much. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I like, I really like aspects of the movie, but man, are those characters awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah, I kind of hate everybody involved in that film. <laughs> wow, that was a way to end that, it. That, that, that's pretty much all I got. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.